Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and listen to us live anywhere in the world, but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. More than I imagined what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. John Blake shares the compelling story that started with a surprise encounter at the age of 17, a revelation that set him on a profound quest to find answers, acceptance, and his place in the world. In our third hour, the curators of the much-talked-about Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibit, King Pleasure, now showing at the Grand L.A. here in L.A., the two curators just happened to be the two sisters of Basquiat, Lassan Basquiat and Janine Aravaux. They both join us live in studio today in Hour 3. But in this first hour today, Thursday, May 25, 2023, marks the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of of Minneapolis police. We had um, Keith Ellison on this program uh, earlier this week, the Minnesota Attorney General who prosecuted that case successfully. And I am pleased today to be joined in this hour by noted civil rights attorney, current executive director of the Wayfounder Foundation and former president of the Minneapolis NAACP, Nakima Levy Armstrong. Nakima, how are you today on this anniversary? I'm doing all right, Travis. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate, um, but I'm not going to lie. Um, this is um, it's an interesting day uh, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which, of course, is why we wanted you on in this first hour uh, to commemorate um, the murder of, um, of George Floyd three years ago today in your town. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we had Keith Ellison on the other day and it was fascinating to hear his take three years later. Uh, as the one who led the prosecution uh, in uh, this particular matter. Uh, I'll start broad, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let it do what it do uh, as we move through the hour. Uh, but uh, first of all, just your, your thoughts. Your thoughts on, on anything, everything, three years later. Well, thank you, Tabith, for covering the three-year anniversary of George Floyd being killed by the Minneapolis Police Department. I would say here in the Twin Cities, we are still going through the motions of dealing with grief and dealing with trauma and trying to figure out how best to heal as a community. And I'm talking specifically about black folks who live here. Mm -hmm. There have been some changes that have happened at the local level as far as a banning of um, the kinds of chokeholds and neck restraints that we saw um, in that hideous 
bystander video that was captured by a 17-year-old young black woman, um, Darnella Frazier, on May 25th of 2020. Um, we've also had shifts in leadership. We have a new police chief, um, Brian O'Hara, who hails from Newark, New Jersey, um, and who has experience with consent decrees. And we also have a new Department of Public Safety, which is uh, run now by Dr. Cedric Alexander, who is a nationally renowned law enforcement expert and a black man um, who now lives here in the Twin Cities. There have been some tinkering around the edges when it comes to police reform and police accountability, but we haven't seen the type of widespread and sweeping changes that we were hoping for, that the Floyd family was hoping for, as well as the families of many folks who have been killed by Minneapolis police, as well as folks across the nation. As you know, there was a massive worldwide uprising after George Floyd was killed, where millions of people took to the streets demanding change. Mm -hmm. And we got a little bit of change, but we still have a long way to go. There's a lot to unpack, and I'm glad to have you for for the hour. Let me let me do this before I move forward. Uh, again, going back to Keith Ellison, who was our guest earlier this week, uh, the Minnesota Attorney General, he he made the point that um, which is arresting to hear, even though I know it. When he said it, it just sort of hit me again. There, Derek Chauvin wasn't even in the top ten worst officers on the Minneapolis Police Force, and when I say ten worst, of what Keith unpacked for us. Um, was when you looked at his record of all the times he'd been written up, of all the cases that had been brought against him, Derek Chauvin wasn't even in the top 10 worst officers three years ago in the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, You know this data better than I. What do you make of that reality in retrospect that he was still on the force? That's looking back and looking forward. Um, What's your sense of how the police department has been cleaned up to the extent it has been? Because if Derek Chauvin wasn't the top 10, I'm curious three years later where those top 10 are. Well, I think that that's a subjective perspective Mm -hmm. um, on the part of the attorney general with regard to Derek Chauvin because he had a pretty terrible record when it came to allegations of abuse and misconduct. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, he had physically assaulted a black woman and mother um, during a 911 call, and he used um, a restraint on her, um, similar to what we saw with George Floyd. Uh, her name is Zoya Code. Her story was featured in the New York Times, and she cried out for help to Chauvin's partner as he was choking her and almost died as a result of what occurred. And there was also a 14-year-old black boy who um, Chauvin restrained as well and almost killed. And recently, both of those two individuals wound up settling um, their lawsuits for millions of dollars Mm -hmm. against the Minneapolis Police Department because of the harm that Derek Chauvin had inflicted upon them. So he had quite a lengthy record of allegations. Right. Um, before George Floyd was killed. And what we on the on the front lines have been saying is that if the Minneapolis Police Department had had an early warning system, mm-hmm. if they had proper checks and balances, George Floyd would still be alive today. Yeah. But the reality is that they did not have an early warning system. The Department of Justice even looked into it. They made the recommendation years before George Floyd was killed 
And yet this was not seen as a priority by the Minneapolis Police Department or city officials within uh, the city of Minneapolis. I heard you use the word subjective earlier in reference to A.G. Ellison. And let me just let me be clear about this so that uh, so, so I'm stating these facts correctly. What I was attempting to say uh, in quoting Keith Ellison that he wasn't the worst. Um, there were 10 officers in front of him who had more allegations, more cases brought against them who were still on the force. That's what Ellison meant by his being uh, not even in the top 10, that there were at least 10 other people whose records uh, were worse than his in terms of, again, cases that have been brought against them, and they were still serving on the force. just wanted to clarify what he meant when he said he wasn't uh, in uh, the top 10. That said, when we come forward, a great deal more to talk about on this third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers. A great deal more to talk about, uh, as I say, with Nakima Levy-Armstrong, who's our guest in this hour. Uh, we heard the news yesterday. In fact, the news broke uh, while I was on air yesterday, that the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, had passed away in Switzerland yesterday at the age of 83, which uh, tees up a wonderful opportunity for us all three hours of today's program to share some of the best of Tina Turner on KBLA Talk 1580. One of I Tina's biggest hits, A Fool in Love. As we all know by now, we lost Tina Turner yesterday at the age of 83. After a long illness, uh, her home in Switzerland, uh, the queen of rock and roll is gone, but her music will live forever, and uh, we will be playing her music in all three hours of today's program in honor of Tina Turner. Um, today is the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of those uh, police officers, Derek Chauvin and the others who stood around and did nothing. Uh, and one of the persons on the front line then and and, and since then is uh, Nakima Levy-Armstrong, who is the executive director of the Wayfinder, Wayfinder Foundation uh, and former um, president of the NAACP there in Minneapolis. And I'm honored to have her back on this program. Uh, I want to go back to this one more time, Nakima, because I, it, it's really it, it it's it's uh, bugging me. Um, and I want to just give you a chance to share a bit more about it. So. When, again, we were talking to Ellison earlier this week, Keith Ellison, and he was making this point about there, the fact that there are many other officers on the force who had more cases brought against them who were still serving than even Derek Chauvin. Um, my, 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 my question is, do we know anything three years later uh, about those other officers? I heard the point you made earlier, the powerful point you made earlier. If they had an early warning system, they didn't then. So let me ask two questions to get out of your way. One. They didn't have an early warning system about bad officers who were still on the force then. Do they have one now, number one? And do we know anything about those other officers who were on the force then, um, who had cases brought against them? Did anything ever happen to them? Do you know? So I would say as of this point, Minneapolis does not have a solid early warning system, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. It is something that we recommended last year those two of us who were part of the mayor's uh, work group on community safety, where we looked at the operations of the Minneapolis Police Department, their policies, um, their recruitment strategies, and various issues, and we made recommendations to the mayor. So that was one of the things that was at the top of our list mm -hmm. that we're expecting for them to um, take action on. With regard to those other officers, these are questions that many of us in the, in the activist community have raised with the city 
um, regarding the whether those other officers will be held accountable mm-hmm. um, for the abuse that they have inflicted upon people. And I would argue that they have not been held accountable, that some officers actually were able to escape accountability by going on disability leave mm. um, in the aftermath of the demonstrations that happened here. We had over 150 officers that took leave that said they had P- PTSD and other ailments. And as a result, they've been able to collect money, collect a pension from the city for work that they are not doing um, and claims that they have made with regard to PTSD. Now, some of those claims could be valid, but the reality is that they all knew that there was a, an extremely toxic and wayward culture within the Minneapolis Police Department for many, many years. It's been an open secret in the city. Mm. Elected officials at all levels from my perspective, were aware of the culture, of the um, allegations of abuse um, that had been levied against the department, the lawsuits that have been filed, and the cases that had been settled, totaling in the tens of millions of dollars. And yet they chose to do nothing um, before George Floyd was killed. Uh, to, to your point now, I'm, I'm glad you went there. You, you must be uh, prophetic and prescient because that's where I wanted to go next, uh, Nakima. And I, I, and I looked into this because um, I, I heard this and I wanted to make sure it was right. And it is, in fact, correct. In a one-decade period, uh, the city of Minneapolis has paid out over $100 million in settlements, the police department. Uh-huh. Over $100 million in one decade. How am I to read that? How's the audience to process that? A hundred million dollars. This is Minneapolis. This isn't New York City. This is not Los Angeles. Uh, I love the Twin Cities, but when I think of the Twin Cities, which is which is part of what troubles me so much, I've been to the Twin Cities so many times in my life, and it's the most beautiful place, one of the most beautiful places in the country. I think it's beautiful. Uh, it seems quiet. It seems serene when you look at it. Uh, just a beautiful, gorgeous place. These Twin Cities. And underneath all that beauty is all this drama, all this madness. A police department paying out over a hundred million dollars uh, in the case uh, over the course of just one decade. H- how are we to read that? And this is beyond George Floyd, of course. How are we? How do we to read and process that that number, Nikima? Well, I would say that two of those cases amount um, to almost half of that figure, and that was George Floyd as well as uh, the case of a white woman, Justine Rusechek-Damon, who was killed in 2017 um, by uh, Officer Muhammad Noor, who was a black Muslim Somali man, who likely accidentally fired his weapon and killed this woman with a single bullet. It doesn't excuse the conduct, but um, that was likely an accident. Typically, what we see happening um, is that officers are intentional when they know that it is a young black man, for example, uh, or another man of color when they decide to use deadly force. And a, and a lot of these cases have resulted in people being shot in the head mm. at point-blank range by Minneapolis police officers. And so I'm glad you brought up the um, the serenity, right, that... Mm. <laughs> that Minneapolis has typically been known for, it's been known as a progressive city, Mm -hmm. Um, the land of 10,000 lakes and, you know, lots of Fortune 500 companies. However, that that facade really masks the truth that um, Minnesota and the Twin Cities are more like the Jim Crow North. Mm. 
Mm. Right. We have a, a a connection to the legacy of slavery here. Um, although, um, you know, Minnesota is typically was typically not seen as a slaveholding state. It is a place in which so-called slave masters were able to come and vacation with their enslaved persons um, and be treated really well, you know, in this environment. And that's how we got the Dred Scott case, mm-hmm. um, where Dred Scott actually came to Minnesota with his so-called master, lived as a free man, and then when it was time for their, his master to leave, he sued in federal court for his freedom. So Minnesota is actually connected to slave history, although it's not talked about a lot. Um, we also have Klan history here. The Klan uh, arose here in uh, 1920. There's no evidence that they ever left, and we know they haven't left because we have had to deal with white supremacists who have shown up at protests, who have shot people, who have attacked people, and who have literally gotten away with um, perpetuating harms against black folks and other people of color here. Mm -hmm. And there have been questions about whether there are connections between some law enforcement officers and white supremacist groups. Mm -hmm. So there are some serious issues in Minnesota. As a matter of fact, you know, I've majored in African-American studies when I was in college. And I remember seeing pictures of lynchings, and one of the worst pictures actually came out of Duluth, Minnesota, mm-hmm. a place that is absolutely gorgeous, a place where you would never suspect that kind of history was a place in which three black circus workers were lynched over a false rape allegation by a white woman. And the picture shows all these white folks standing around with black bodies burning. So that is a part of our history here that I feel connects to the blatant disregard for human life when it comes to black folks in the Twin Cities and the plight that we experience at the hands of police, as well as the um, racial injustices across the board, even looking socioeconomically, home ownership rates. We have one of the lowest home ownership rates for black folks in the country right here in the state of Minnesota. Mm. You said a mouthful right there. First of all, let me thank you um, for reminding us, as you did so brilliantly, about how we got the Dred Scott case. Uh, it's, a, it's a case that we all know, uh, and many of us, of course, have studied in college. Uh, but you put your finger on that thing beautifully, reminding us how the Dred Scott case came to be and that it uh, uh, is uh, its epicenter is the state of Minnesota. Uh, and then you come with this history lesson about Duluth. And the minute you said Duluth, you know what my mind went to, Bob Dylan. Uh, the great Bob mm-hmm. Dylan is from Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, and you think of Bob Dylan, you think of um, uh, progressive lyrics. I mean, you, you, you got to give Bob Dylan his due. Uh, there have been few mm-hmm. better than him over the years at writing lyrics that are progressive in nature. Uh, to your earlier point, uh, we see the Twin Cities, certainly Minneapolis, as a progressive space. I've got about 90 seconds before news, traffic, and sports will continue on the other side. But how is it that we can have, on the one hand, all that you just beautifully and brilliantly uh, and scarily <laughs> laid out for us with this notion that you live in a progressive city? The two things don't, it's hard to square those two things, Nikima. It Exactly. Just like it's hard to square the ideals of the U.S. Constitution with the treatment of black folks Mm. in this country, right? All men are created equal, and yet we know that we are treated as anything less than equal in this society. So that dichotomy that we see in Minnesota, what I, like I said, I call the Jim Crow North, Mm -hmm. exists throughout America and throughout American history, 
where there are these ideals projected, but the reality for black folks is markedly different. When we come forward, I want to talk a, a bit more about those changes uh, uh, that have happened, uh, but more importantly, the changes that have not happened. What has not changed in Minneapolis over the last three years? Uh, I want to ask Nakima how she processed seeing that video of Jordan Neely being choked to death by a white man on a subway train in New York City and whether or not that triggered her and others. It certainly triggered me uh, because it reminded me immediately of again, another videotape uh, where we saw George Floyd, of course, being choked to death. I want to talk about qualified immunity and a great deal more when we come forward uh, in this hour as we commemorate the murder of George Floyd three years ago today in the progressive, air quotes, city of Minneapolis. You're listening to KBLA. We are celebrating and commemorating today after her passing yesterday at the age of 83 in Switzerland after a long illness. And so we are playing Tina Turner music in and out of our segments all three hours of today's program in honor of the uh, life and musical, rich musical legacy uh, of one Tina Turner. What an artistic genius. And we, uh, again... Send our condolences out to her family today on her passing yesterday at the age of 83. Uh, George Floyd passed away, in fact, was murdered. He didn't pass away, he was murdered by Minneapolis police three years ago today. Uh, and we are commemorating his uh, life uh, three years later with our guest in this hour, who is the executive director presently of the Wayfinder Foundation, former president of the Minneapolis uh, NAACP, a civil rights attorney, champion for racial justice, all-around uh, good sister, and I'm always honored to be in dialogue. Uh, the consequences notwithstanding, or the uh, uh, context, rather, notwithstanding. Uh, always uh, delighted to be in conversation with, with Nakima Levy-Armstrong. Uh, uh, Nakima, let me, let me go right to this uh, Jordan Neely um, uh, videotape. We'll talk in a moment about what has not changed in Minneapolis over uh, the last three years, this progressive city, Minneapolis. Um, but three years after uh, the murder of the of George Floyd, uh, being choked to death essentially by uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, when all these months later you see another videotape of a black man named Jordan Neely being choked to death by a former Marine on a subway in New York, um, how does that how does that strike you? Well, it was definitely sickening to see a black body once again being treated as disposable and expendable, and particularly um, a young man who was homeless, who deserved to be able to live and breathe and, you know, have his dignity intact. And that's not what happened on the subway train. And the fact that we have a presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis, essentially calling this man a hero mm -hmm. reminds me of some of the rhetoric that we heard here from the uh, Minneapolis Police Federation head at the time, Bob Crow, um, basically trying to justify the murder of George Floyd. And so it's this constant issue of seeing black bodies be disposed of by law enforcement or vigilantes and then having folks in positions of authority try to rubber stamp that violence and abuse being perpetuated against black folks. Yeah. Let me put a finer point on your comment about Ron DeSantis, who announced yesterday, uh, once they got past all the drama, uh, the tech drama at Twitter, uh, he and Elon Musk had their conversation, uh, which I did not watch, uh, but I read all about it, of course. 
Um, and so Ron DeSantis, uh, governor of Florida, is he uh, is now officially in the race for the GOP nomination. But a week or so ago, he made uh, news once again uh, because he called uh, Daniel Penny, uh, the white guy who choked the black Jordan Neely to death on that subway train. Ron DeSantis, or as Donald Trump calls him, Ron DeSantimonious. That's the one thing Trump says I do like. Uh, Ron DeSantimonious. <laughs> uh, Ron DeSantimonious called uh, Daniel Penny not just a hero, but a good Samaritan. He called him uh. a good Samaritan and then asked his followers to donate to his legal defense fund. I haven't checked that number in the last 48 hours, but they are now into the millions well into the millions of dollars raised for the legal defense fund for Daniel Penny, again, uh, the white ex-Marine who killed the black, choked the black Jordan Neely to death on that subway train. But Ron DeSantis calls him a good Samaritan. Uh, I don't need to color this much more for you, Nikima, uh, since you raised his name first. I'm just following you. But what does that say to you uh, about the coming campaign for the White House, about the culture wars that we are about to even get more uh, deeply ensconced into but when a guy runs for president and sees what you and I and everybody else saw on that videotape and then calls that white guy a good Samaritan, what does that portend in your mind for what's about to come in this presidential race? Well, we should understand that we're in trouble if we think that we have moved past the levels of racism and white supremacy that Donald Trump helped bring to the nation's visibility um, and to the surfaces. It's always been there, but he definitely helped shine a light and helped stoke um, some of that racial tension and hostility during his presidency. And we know that because he won the first time and because he almost won the second time, Ron DeSantis has been working to jump on that train um, to ensure that he's helping to fan the flames of racial hatred and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing him do this in the, the statements such as what you mentioned, which is so appalling and disgusting, but also the banning of, of books mm -hmm. by black authors and, and other authors of color. I mean, even Amanda Gorman's beautiful poem that mm -hmm. she read at uh, President Joe Biden's inauguration um, now being banned. Um, and then, of course, attacks on critical race theory and all the just the lies that are being told to try to erase our history and to whitewash the truth. So that's what we're, we're what we're in for. And we know some of those folks who participated in the January 6th uh, rioting and storming of the Capitol. They're waiting for a Trump 2.0 uh, or a person like Ron DeSantis who can help give them a platform for some of the garbage that they spew out um, about black folks, about them feeling threatened, about the country being taken away from them, um, and as well as pushing for so-called law and order, even though we know that there's hypocrisy, yeah. because many officers were killed um, by these same individuals on January 6, 2021. It, it raises, Nakima, this question for me, which is how in a moment, uh, a moment that I would describe as one where we are, uh, how might I put this, um, witnessing the uh, the decay of our civilization, the devolution of our culture. How in a moment like this where you have a presidential candidate calling Daniel Penny a good Samaritan, 
how in that moment, when you have a presidential candidate essentially condoning vigilantism, vigilantism, how in a moment like that do you expect that we will ever get police accountability? I mean, if, if, if you're if you're if you're endorsing that kind of death wish, we all recall that movie, of course, if you recall that kind of death, if you support rather, that kind of death wish behavior, the movie starring Charles Bronson back in the day, Bruce Willis redid it. Uh, if you're endorsing that on the part of everyday people, how in the world in that space do you get police accountability? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I don't think we should expect to get police accountability with those dynamics in play. I mean, heck, we can't even get police accountability with a Democrat, Joe Biden, um, you know, being the president and Kamala Harris being the vice president. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of empty promises. We've had, you know, some some leaders um, in elected positions who have been advocating for change. But we know that overall, the political will is simply not there that folks are able to tolerate a lot of injustice um, to have this false notion of peace and safety. And they're, they, they're seemingly unconcerned or indifferent when that results in the loss of life of innocent people. And so it is a widespread and systemic problem, and we know what we're up against if someone like DeSantis or Donald Trump um, gets in the office. I mean, they verbalize what a lot of these individuals may be thinking, but um, unaf- that are you know, but they're unafraid to mm-hmm. say it out loud until you have a person like that opening the door um, for folks to be bold and you know, letting their their racial hatred flags fly, if you will. Yeah. Um, in terms of how they really feel about black folks and other people of color in this country, so we we definitely need to gear up and understand what's at stake and make sure that we get to the polls when the time comes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it frightens me when you have, again, a presidential candidate like Ron DeSantis encouraging and supporting that kind of reckless behavior. Uh, it seems to me we're going to get more of that in the coming months and years. I digress on that for the moment. When we come forward, uh, we'll get Nikema Levy-Armstrong to unpack for us what has not changed in the three years since the murder of George Floyd. She gave us a, 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 a beautiful list earlier of the progress, some of the progress that has been made in that city. But what's not changed that, that, most, uh, uh, that she finds most striking uh, and stark? And we'll get her take on qualified immunity. She mentioned President Joe Biden. Uh, and the accountability that we still have not gotten as we want it for police. And we'll come to this issue of qualified immunity uh, as well when we come forward with Nakima Levy-Armstrong on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 is an intervention. When we come forward, includes you. KBLA Talk 1580, turning pain into power. Levy-Armstrong, I guess, in this hour as we commemorate the death of George Floyd three years ago today. Um Watching my time here, Nakima, let me start with this. Um, one of the things that uh, we did not get done, have not gotten done as yet, is the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd Policing Act. Um, this uh, oftentimes do-nothing Senate, uh, and of course we understand over the past three years that Senate has been sort of uh, deadlocked, and it has not helped that the senator from West Virginia and the senator from Arizona uh, have not um, stepped up as they should in a variety of ways. I digress on that point. But uh, to your mind, um, how do you process, what does it mean to you that three years after his death with all of the hype, I mean, everybody uh, seemed to be making comments and public pronouncements about the, the necessity, the need for this George Floyd Policing Act to be passed by Congress. It ain't happened, Nikema. Well, I'm not surprised that 
it ain't happening because this is consistent with what we have experienced over the course of many years um, since we've been calling out issues of police violence and the lack of accountability. I'm thinking about Sean Bell in New York, Amadou Diallo, uh, you know, all these folks many years ago, Rodney King, you know, I grew up in LA Mm -hmm. and I remember the impacts of the beating of Rodney King and the lack of accountability for those officers. And what we, we, we see the same thing, you know, folks standing up, coming to the microphone, making pledges and promises and being ultimately unable to deliver on those promises when it comes to what black America Mm -hmm. is actually asking for. I think it's ironic that we did get a Juneteenth holiday that most of us didn't ask for, <laughs> but we can't get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, it's a powerful point. Speaking of uh, speaking of uh, something else that hasn't uh, hasn't changed or is changing, depending on one looks at it, uh, there are all these public pronouncements uh, that you referenced a moment ago on the part of many companies. Some of them, as you mentioned, headquartered in Minneapolis, major Fortune 400 companies, um, a number of companies, everybody essentially promised to do better. Uh, by diversity, equity, and inclusion. Many companies promise to do better by spending money and supporting black-owned businesses, et cetera, et cetera. You'll recall, we all recall, all the promises that were made three years ago after the murder of George Floyd, and now we see so many of those companies doing a 180. They're eliminating DE&I positions. They're, uh, uh, they, they've pulled back the money for certain programs. I can assure you they have not supported black-owned businesses, uh, media outlets the way they said they would. We see a retrenchment three years later with regard to those promises three years ago. How do you read that, Nakima? Well, I read that as these folks feeling like it's popular in the moment to make these public statements so they can get press so that they can look like they're doing good on behalf of our community. But the proof is in the pudding. Mm -hmm. We know that many of these corporations, as you just intimated, failed to make good on their promises. And, and some of what they pledged was in the billions of dollars in terms of new programs and initiatives and shifts that they said that they would make in terms of, Uh, looking at their hiring and promotion practices and things like that. But we have seen those promises being rolled back, um, just as you noted, which I think is really disturbing. But it also reinforces why so many of us have trouble believing these things in the first place. You know, when they're saying they're going to do this, it's like Dr. King. What did he say? that we, we have a check marked insufficient funds, mm-hmm. right? They had they didn't make good on their promises in the 50s and 60s, and here we are in 2023, and we are still standing in line with the check marked insufficient funds if you are black in America. Yeah, I've said this more than once. I'll say it again. Uh, I hope that some enterprising young journalist who wants to win a Pulitzer um, will do the research uh, and write the definitive story of all that these companies promised to do three years ago and what they did not do. It's an exhaustive assignment. Uh, but you want to win a you want to win a Pulitzer. You want to win uh, some major awards. Write that story. Do the research on that. What they all promised to do, and then detail what they did not do. Just out everybody. Uh, and watch uh, the attention that story gets. Uh, I've been encouraging somebody to write it. Maybe somebody will. In our remaining moments with Nikima Levy-Armstrong, we'll talk about whether or not what happened to George Floyd three years ago has moved the needle at all, and there's so many other cases since then. But have we moved the needle at all? Is the conversation advancing on the notion of qualified immunity for many of these cops? We'll do that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.
Akeem Olivia Armstrong got about two minutes left in this conversation, which I have uh, enjoyed immensely. I mean, I, the, the circumstances, conditions, I wish were different. Uh, but uh, we want to make the most of this anniversary of the, the death of uh, George Floyd three years later and just push this country continue uh, continually to, to do better. So I close with this. Um, your thoughts on, on where we are or not when it comes to qualified immunity for many of these cops across the country. Well, for some reason, there has been a consistent desire to protect killer cops, and we know that qualified immunity is one way in which that happens. To date, there have been four states that have placed a ban um, on qualified immunity, and those states are Colorado, Montana, Nevada, and New Mexico. And then New York City became the first city to um, put, place a ban on uh, qualified immun immunity. I think that those are promising developments, but as you know, we have 50 states, mm -hmm. right? And we have a federal government that has not taken action as well um, with regard to ending qualified immunity. And I think if they were to do that, we would see a much faster acceleration of there being um, not only police accountability, but also officers making decisions to act less recklessly when they know that their own finances are on the line and their families' livelihoods and houses and everything else would be on the line if they were able to be personally sued for um, violating people's rights, for using deadly force um, unjustifiably. Um, but again, jurisdictions are willing to act against their own interests and protect police officers from being held personally liable uh, when they kill someone. And I think that's the big part of the problem. That is a built-in systemic way to maintain the status quo. And it's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Uh, and so the struggle continues. Uh, Nakima Levy-Armstrong is the uh, executive director of the Wayfinder Foundation, former president of the Minneapolis NAACP, civil rights attorney, and uh, just a uh, committed champion for racial justice in the city of Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, and beyond. And I'm always delighted, uh, again, to have her as a guest on this program. Nakima, Nakima, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. Uh, brilliant and powerful as always. Uh, we'll talk somewhere down the road, I hope. Thank you, Tavis. I appreciate you so much. Love you back. Take care of yourself. Hour one, gone. Hour two and three in front of us on KBLA Talk 1580.